0: Hey, it's Matea Roach, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and, increasingly, national security and policing, two subjects that I did not think I would ever develop a deep interest in, but here we are. (music) Today. There are a bunch of unidentified flying objects in the skies above us, and governments have ordered them to be shot down. Will 99 left balloons be the next 1980s hit to rocket up the charts after a bunch of Zoomers hear it for the first time? And RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky announced that she'll be stepping down. And at the same time, Justice Paul Rouleau has dropped 2023's hottest mixtape with his report on the federal government's use of the Emergencies Act in response to last year's Freedom Convoy. Let's talk federal policing. Joining me this week, our eyes and ears from this country's capital, Nick taylor vassy from Politico, long time no see.
1: Been a while. Thanks for having me back.
0: Some of our Patreon supporters have said that they've missed her voice on the network, so back by popular demand, we have Sandy Garasino, public affairs columnist for Canada's National Observer. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me on, Matea. I'm really happy to be here.
0: Our sarcastic PhD in political science and David Byrne scholar, David Moskrop, author, columnist, and podcaster, welcome back.
3: Very nice to be back. And you can also see a signed copy of David Byrne's book on music just over my shoulder here. Well, you can't see it as a listener, but... Imagine if you could.
0: In the Mind Palace, you can see that there's a copy of How Music Works with a signature in the back. Let's get into it.
2: In February,
0: the U.S. shot down a suspected Chinese spy balloon and three unidentified flying objects over North American airspace.
1: Justin Trudeau gave the order himself to take out an unidentified flying object over the Yukon on Saturday.
3: Uh, It represented a reasonable threat to civilian aircraft Uh, so I gave the order to take it down. Aircraft assigned to NORAD successfully took down this high altitude airborne object. We acted
1: in consultation with the Canadian government.
0: I spoke personally with Prime Minister Trudeau.
3: This was uh, an unacceptable infringement of uh, airspace uh, and Canadian sovereignty.
0: So let me tell you a story about this airship-unidentified-flying-objects-balloons-cylinder-whatever-you-want-to-call-it saga. Over the past few weeks, four flying objects have been shot down over North America by fighter jets. The first of these objects was confirmed to be a balloon and was shot down by the U.S. military off the coast of South Carolina. It is suspected to be a Chinese balloon, but China has said that it was a weather-monitoring device. Washington claims that it was clearly a surveillance device as it had a massive undercarriage containing electronics. The official reason given for shooting down all of these flying objects has been that they served as a threat to civil aviation. So after this first object was shot down over South Carolina or the coast, a second unidentified object was shot down over Alaska. So why are we talking about this on the backbench, a show that's famously about Canadian federal politics? Well, two of the objects were actually shot down over Canada. One of them was shot down over the Yukon, and another likely landed in Canadian waters over Lake Huron after being shot down. The search for these objects has now been suspended. According to U.S. President Biden, there's no indication that these latter three objects, the one in Alaska, the one over Lake Huron, and the one in the Yukon, were in any way related to China's spy balloon program, nor were they surveillance vehicles. There's also a big chance that there are many more balloons out there, and NORAD, which stands for the North American Aerospace Defense Command— I am also very upset that the acronym doesn't really match what it stands for— NORAD found the other three after the first one because they updated the parameters of their surveillance to include smaller objects that previously they wouldn't have flagged. One thing that's interesting to note is that in all four of these cases, the balloons were shot down by American missiles, including the two that were shot down over Canadian airspace. Is this a question of national security or a weather monitoring program gone wrong? Some people are saying it's aliens, but it's probably not aliens, right? We want to turn to our experts to cut through the noise and find out what's going on. What do you make of Canada's response to these flying objects? Because the U.S. was, you know, the entity that shot them down, but the Canadian government has also issued statements on them. Is that right?
1: Yeah. And I think according to Canadians and Americans in, you know, the national security community, everything kind of when according to plan, we have a binational aerospace defense command, whichever fighter jet was closest to the thing that they weren't sure what they were shooting down was the one to go shoot the thing down. I guess that's how it's supposed to be. Even if the thing they're shooting costs 400 and some odd thousand dollars and the thing they're shooting down is, I don't know, who knows what. The most interesting part of this for a journalist is somebody who watches Ottawa a lot and asks questions a lot to people in positions of authority is that, Because it's the binational command, that means that the number of people who really know what's going on is bigger than maybe typical of something happening in Ottawa. You have Canadian and American military leaders, political leaders on both sides of the border, everybody holding press conferences. And so what, what ended up happening, they wouldn't describe the objects in exactly the same terms. Some would use more specific terminology or more speculative terminology than others. And in the end, it was a demonstration of the limits of message control in government. And it was amazing to behold. You had the defense minister in Canada, Anita Anand, who is famously like a very smart person who sticks to her own messages, not really saying much at all about what these objects were. But then you had the chief of the defense staff, the top military official in Canada, describing them in the very same press conference as Anand as a balloon, at least the one over Yukon. The next day, Chuck Schumer, uh, the Senate Majority Leader, cites American national security forces saying that these were balloons. But then you had the commander of NORAD (laughs) later that day, which was a Sunday, only a day after this thing was shot down over Yukon, saying nothing about balloons. And then soon after, Canadian officials, in a technical briefing with journalists, described them as lighter-than-air objects and then eventually described the object over Lake Huron as a suspected balloon. So... It just became a bit of a joke about like how many euphemisms can you use to describe a thing that maybe is probably a balloon, but ultimately just reveals how how hard it is to contain a message once enough people know about it that too many people are describing it.
0: It sounds as though the response in terms of the actual shooting down of a suspected threat went well, but then the messaging and making sure that everybody was on the same page, perhaps that's an instance where things were not all going as they should. Suspected balloon is definitely a phrase I'm going to think of, I think, a lot in the coming days. Sandy, what do you think of NORAD's response? Like, is this an example of NORAD working well, or is this sort of inconsistency with messaging and people, you know, saying it's a balloon, it's not a balloon— Is that indicative of any larger things that we should be concerned about?
2: Well, it's probably that they're reluctant to call it a balloon because then everybody would understand what a circus this all is. The whole thing is governed by a news cycle that is driven by visuals. This is a balloon. We got pictures of a balloon and everybody was like staring at a balloon. You know, you would think that there weren't satellites in the skies above us that are gathering huge amounts of intelligence, that China doesn't own TikTok, which is vacuuming up massive, massive amounts of data and intelligence, and that there are hacking and all kinds of other invasive measures that are being taken by every government around the world. But look, there's a balloon in the sky. Let's all look at it and talk about it and force all of our government representatives and our army and everybody to come out and shoot the balloon and talk about the balloon and reassure the rest of us about the balloon. And the whole thing is a circus.
3: The thing that stands out to me the most is there's some poor hobbyist group (laughs) now missing a balloon. (laughs) It's a bad time to be a balloon hobbyist. And I worry that we've really lost them in this conversation. (laughs) Well no, <laughs> won't anyone think of the balloon hobbyists? Imagine being someone who's like a weather balloonist right now. Like or, or like a like a flying balloonist. What, what do you call those things you go up in the balloons? What do you Oh yeah,
2: the hot air balloon. People. Hot air
3: balloons. Not not a good time for that. Not, not a good time a for the time. hot air balloon industry. I would put it on hold. It's sort of like in the cruise category for me right now. I'm just like I don't I'm going to put that in the maybe column. But I mean one thing of note is that it seems that we're also conflating things because it seems that there was a Chinese spy balloon initially, and then perhaps a bunch of hobbyist balloons that were shot down because everyone overreacted to there being Chinese spy balloons, which have apparently been around for some time. And and we're just figuring that out now. You know, what what gets me and to pick up on Sandy's point about the circus is that it then becomes a sort of political tool to advance agendas and to, to capitalize obviously politically for, for parties uh, and for individuals But we can't have a serious conversation about defense in this country without either kind of saying, oh, there's nothing to see here or saying it's time for a second Cold War.
0: We have been getting kind of these scattered details and different narratives. And I think that that has led to, as David said, sort of a divergence where people either are taking this very seriously and are convinced that things are being covered up and there's actually like possibly – you know, hundreds, thousands, whatever spy balloons that we're not hearing about and all of these things. And then some people are completely taking it not seriously whatsoever at all. Is there a good reason for us to have been getting such scattered details on on all of this? Like if it really is kind of a situation where there's nothing to see, does having secrecy in these sorts of instances promote conspiratorial thinking or maybe promote people making more out of this than there really is?
1: I agree with everything that Sandy and Dave said about the the unseriousness of the, of the real threat, apparently, to at least three of the four objects. But I think it's incumbent on people in positions of power to talk to us about the serious things. Uh, Sandy made a very good point about satellites being in the sky, just higher up, that we just don't see, posing a far greater security threat. It's almost too obvious a point to make after you sort of compare the two situations, the the balloon, only one of which we have visuals really confirmed for, I believe. Maybe one of the other ones eventually had something, but I, I've only seen the one. But when government officials are, it's up to them to set the narrative if they want. And they could have pivoted to talking about true security threats, like, for example, the Globe story on the front page of that newspaper, the day the Rouleau report came out a few days ago, which was all about a very specific campaign by the Chinese government to influence the Canadian federal election.
0: So when we're speaking of Chinese electoral interference, what we mean is that there have been recent allegations that the Chinese government intervened in 11 campaigns in the 2019 federal election to support both liberals and conservatives. The overall goal of this was to ensure a liberal minority government with the thought that that would be the situation that would reduce both parties' criticism of China by keeping them kind of turned against one another. And specific candidates were supported in an effort to make sure that Candidates who would be highly critical of China on things like freedom of speech, repression of Uyghurs, a crackdown on free speech and democracy in Hong Kong, uh, those candidates would not be elected and more docile candidates towards China would instead enter parliament.
1: That's something they could talk about. Our officials, at least at the federal level, are a little bit unnerved by the idea of being aggressive in their rhetoric about the Chinese government. and whether or not it may or may not be an adversary of Canada, but it's up to them, I I would argue. Not only them, of course, but there's a a big opportunity when you're in front of a microphone and you're talking about a fighter jet that, let's be clear, over Lake Huron, missed the first time. (laughs) They've missed that object because it's hard to hit. Honestly, it is. At that press conference, at the technical briefing that followed, whatever, somebody could be talking about the other threats here, and they're just not doing that. They're choosing not to do that, and that's a political choice. That I think is also really worth talking about.
0: Like I said at the top of the show, I feel like we've been talking about issues of national security, issues of the military, and all of these sorts of things on the backbench a lot lately because these have been some of the top news stories over the past couple of months and the things that we have felt like really needed to be dived into. One thing that happened recently, so six Russian spy balloons were actually recently spotted over Kiev. So... Is there, like, a sense that this is a kind of surveillance that is growing? Is it just that there's increased visibility because of this one story? And as we mentioned, like, NORAD actually changing the parameters of what it looks for, and therefore maybe militaries are are more attuned to this notion of, like, smaller surveillance spy balloons? Or are satellites, like, still really the main thing that we have to worry about?
3: First of all, I mean, states or or polities have been spying on each other forever. It's not in any way new. It's, It's normal everybody does it we do it when you get caught uh, you pay a sort of political price and you pay a potentially a, a retribution militarily or or through uh, you know espionage retribution but it's just a normal part of states being states doesn't mean we shouldn't take it seriously doesn't mean we shouldn't monitor it though we should accept that from rule one we're all doing it including us in one way or another i've always been very very hesitant to buy into conspiracy theories. But an important distinction is there are conspiracies that are true. And whenever I look at these things, I always think, well, you know, maybe there's something else going on. Without going all the way down the rabbit hole, whenever I read about national security stories, I'm thinking about the balloons particularly right now. I just wonder if there's just not something else that we're missing and and won't know for for decades, if ever.
1: I think we got a, a bit of a peek into that unknown that David's talking about when NORAD, which I think anybody who's half familiar with it would assume kind of knows everything. It's the U.S. government. How could they not have their eyes and ears everywhere? Had to change the filters on the radar to, to detect more things, and that's how they found all these other little objects. They don't have the process down pat, not to say that they aren't nefarious and doing, doing bad things to good people, but it's amazing to know that I knew as much about the balloons in the sky as apparently no red. And I don't know a single thing about those things. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
0: Now it's time for Private Members' Bills, the part of the show where we let our panelists set the agenda for once. Without further ado, I'd like to call on the Honorable Member from Ottawa South to introduce a Private Members' Bill.
3: Thank you, Honorable Speaker. I know it's unusual to to have someone from Ottawa South doing something in Parliament, and so I just want to take this opportunity to recognize that. Now, in Ottawa, there's a, a group of business folks who want to create a district just south of Parliament called uh, SOPA, which sounds delicious if you're a Spanish speaker. But I think we shouldn't stop there. If we're going to be ripping off uh, South Park bits South Park famously having uh, an arc in which uh, Soto Sopa, south of downtown South Park, becomes a a happening district, a gentrified district. Uh, We should go all the way. There's a certain quality to the vibe and energy that is Soto Sopa. From the independent merchants and unique cafes to the rustic charm of a mixed-income crowd. Why stop at Sopa? We should uh, rename ourselves the Kingdom of Canada. We should have a Canadian Department of Mobile Gaming.
0: Oh, I'm only the Prince of Canada, and this happens to be the Minister of Mobile Gaming. We thought you would be pleased with the quality of the mobile game. It's the dumbest game ever. All you do is collect and spend Canada. Uh,
3: We should have a Canadian President's Tower. We should have the Canadian Maple Syrup Company, the Canadian Red Wine Winery, and of course the Canadian White Wine Winery. If we're going to revitalize Ottawa by ripping off South Park, uh, I think we should go all in because the city deserves uh, at least that.
0: I really fear that the Department of Mobile Gaming might not happen federally, but that's something I could see happening provincially in Ontario, completely unironically. If we can have ministers of red tape reduction, why not online or mobile gaming? All right, we'll now hear from the Honourable Member from Ottawa, Vanier.
1: Honourable Speaker, it's time for Parliament and parliamentarians to get along again. And that is why my bill would mandate that every... Member of Parliament, four times a year, at least, would get together and agree on something to pass unanimously. That's it. That's the entire thing. They can already do that. Uh, They could just just use Parliament to do that. But I think this bill would, because they'd have to report back every quarter on their progress, they'd have to admit that they couldn't do it if they can't, so that all the rest of us Canadians would look upon them in shame.
0: What sorts of things do you think... They should be agreeing on outside of the bounds of parliament,
1: you know, tinkering with the criminal code seems to be a popular thing for parliamentarians to propose and then have that. So it could be something like that. It could be anything they want, but it just has to happen four times a year. has to.
0: all right. I see four times a year. maybe we see some salary increases.
1: <laughs> no, 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 they already they're already, there already to get those. That's already indexed. That's,
0: that's true. <laughs> I forget that it's indexed. They and like almost nobody else in the country.
1: yeah, that's right. They're enriching themselves on a regular basis.
0: RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky announced her retirement right before the Rouleau report was released. The report, which is the outcome of the Emergencies Act inquiry, which was the inquiry into the federal government's use of the Emergencies Act in response to the Freedom Convoy's occupation of Ottawa last winter, says that the government met the, quote, very high threshold that was required in order to invoke the act. Lucky says she's leaving her role as commissioner knowing that she did her best and that stepping down was, quote, a personal decision. Her last day on the job will be March 17th. There have been many calls for Lucky's resignation throughout her time as RCMP commissioner. Those calls follow allegations of political interference the mishandling of the convoy protests, as well as her failure to acknowledge systemic racism within the force in the summer of 2020. I I really struggle with it, and I'm not trying to avoid your question. I'm just struggling with it because I've heard about five or six definitions. And so when I think of systemic racism being embedded into policy and procedure, when I think of it in those terms, I think it's not completely systemic. But then when I think of it in terms of unconscious bias, I think... We're not immune to that, and there is unconscious bias in our organization. She apologized for that failure and clarified shortly after. During the Emergencies Act inquiry, it came to light that Lucky felt officials hadn't used, quote, all available tools to dismantle the convoy protests, but apparently did not adequately speak up and say this during a key meeting prior to the invocation. Another major allegation against Lucky was over the Nova Scotia mass shooting in Peque. Lucky allegedly tried to get the RCMP to release the gun type used by the shooter to help justify the Liberals' proposed gun legislation. The report about what unfolded at Port Port-Peak, the Nova Scotia Mass Casualty Commission, is due at the end of March. Being the RCMP commissioner is a difficult role. It's not one that you could ever pay me enough money such that I would want to do it. Lucky is basically the head of the largest policing force in the country, and she was the first permanent female commissioner in that role. So there were actually high hopes that due to the historic nature of her appointment, she might be the one to make a lot of changes in the organization. But despite taking on one of the most influential leadership roles in the country, her tenure has raised questions about what it takes to be a leader, especially the leader of the RCMP. Nick, to start with Brenda Lucky, we mentioned in the intro a number of different controversies. Are those really the defining moments of Lucky's tenure? Is there anything that I didn't mention that is of note? Did she get anything done or is it all just kind of this trail of disappointments?
1: I think when you look at the list of former RCMP commissioners, you don't see a lot of names that inspire confidence and legacies, you know, to really make the country proud. But Lucky has gone through several years of seeming to piss off everybody in a way that That feels kind of hard to pull off. Her legacy is, I I, I don't know what the positive spin on it really is. And before we started recording, I I took another look at polling that the RCMP has done every year on the public opinion of, of, of a variety of aspects of the country's relationship with the Mounties. Like, how much do they trust them? What's the leadership that's shown? How inclusive is the force? And the numbers are all trending downward. And for the last several years have been
2: let me jump in here the RCMP is going to resist change and sabotage any commissioner appointed to bring in change which is what every commissioner that the government appoints is going to be that's going to be their that's going to be their assignment you are going to oversee uh, the reform of the RCMP and the RCMP has demonstrated that they absolutely will resist this and anybody who tries to do it is going to get Submarined, But I want to point to one thing in particular that I think is really key here. What exactly is wrong with the Commissioner of the RCMP advising the Minister of Emergency Response of the kind of weapons that were used in the worst mass killing in Canadian history? What is wrong with that? She should have pushed back, but I feel like there was an attempt here to undermine her and to go after her. The nature of the weapons used was not a central form of the investigation, and it in no way interfered with the police investigation for the Minister of Emergency Response or the Minister of Public Safety to know what kind of weapon was used. And it's absolutely material if you're drafting firearms legislation and you're confronted with the worst mass killing in Canadian history, that the government should be able to respond to that. And I think it's absolutely outrageous the way that that whole thing has been framed. And I think that the commissioner should have pushed back hard immediately, that there's absolutely nothing wrong with informing the government of the day of key details that were actually not very material at all to the investigation.
0: But I guess, like, one question I have after that is, like, if she would have been right to push back, like, why do you think that she didn't sort of stand her ground and say, you know what, no, this is actually something that I was doing within the scope of my role.
2: I think by this time it was clear that she did not have the backing of, of the RCMP, nor will anybody who is ever appointed to change that body. You know, we're, we're almost in a situation, we've got a really serious problem with with policing in Canada. Like, is there any
0: sort of person or any sort of leader that would be able to shepherd the RCMP perhaps to a more effective role in Canadian policing? Because it doesn't seem like the RCMP is going away anytime soon.
3: I think it's in part an issue of the individual, but I actually think the individual is necessary but insufficient on their own. Because the challenge of reforming any police service, and this isn't just an RCMP issue, this is a policing issue in general, and again, the Rouleau Commission has indicated that there are deep problems, but it's an institutional problem. So the behavior we see vis-a-vis the RCMP and change isn't an, a police issue uniquely, it's an institutional issue. And almost any institution you try to reform is going to resist reformation, in part because the it's a living, breathing thing in which the individuals who participate have interests, who have preferences, who have desires, who have ways of doing things, and they'll typically fight to maintain those. And they'll certainly try to resist outsiders. And we see this all the time. You try to bring an outsider into an institution and that's resisted. They're either um, expelled from it or they're, they're brought into it and made a part of it, like the Borg. The way that you change institutions typically is you wait for what they call a critical juncture off which you take a new path, right? So in institutions, you have sort of path dependence. We do this because we've always done it. It's the easiest way to do it. You keep doing it. And then for whatever reason, you have a critical juncture, and now's your chance to change it. Uh, I think changing something as, as significant as the RCMP is going to rely on a critical juncture of some sort combined with the right person to do that work. And uh, it's extraordinarily difficult. It's a long game for sure. It wasn't going to be Brenda Lucky in this moment. It might be someone else in the next moment. But that's not just an RCMP issue, as I mentioned. It's going to be something we have to look at in general across this country, with not just police, uh, but with the way we do federalism, the way we govern ourselves. And, and again, the Reload Commission indicated that there's a deep problems uh, with all of this. So the, the battle is, is far ahead of us. And, and I'm not saying I love our odds, but it's not impossible. It's just, you know, you got to be patient. Wait for your moment.
0: I agree that Brenda Lucky was not going to be the person clearly to change the RCMP. I feel like if she were, there were many moments over the past five years that to me read as they should be real wake-up calls in terms of like what we expect of our national police force, right? But to talk about something else that you mentioned, David, whew, it makes me so upset Let's talk about the Rouleau Commission, because that's like the hot new issue that's happening right now. What are the major takeaways from this report? Just kind of the top line items.
1: Justice Paul Rouleau held six weeks of public hearings. Everybody was paying attention in Ottawa and almost nowhere else. And then after that, he held policy hearings with, with really smart people. And even the people in Ottawa didn't pay attention to those. But it all informed his five-volume massive final report that, that came out. I mean, the big question, obviously, that everybody was wondering how he would answer or even if he would answer was, uh, was the government justified in invoking the Emergencies Act? And he said, yeah, politically, it was, I think, (laughs) people say it's like the prime minister's office couldn't have written a better report for his purposes, which I think is relatively true. My read on it was it was not a slam dunk. And he allowed that people who look at the same set of facts could come reasonably to a different conclusion than he did. But his conclusion was that the government was justified though he did say not every measure was effective or appropriate, though most were. And he called it a problem of policing. He called it a failure of federalism and intelligence and made many recommendations, many of which were focused on policing, as we've already kind of recognized.
0: So let's talk about some of those recommendations. What sorts of things does the report recommend be done going forward? And what is the likelihood that those things actually happen?
1: I could speak to the recommendations on a really high level, which is to say that The occupation of downtown Ottawa and the various blockades at various Canada-US border crossings were horrendous failures of communication and coordination between levels of government, between levels of government and police forces, and between different police forces. And so the recommendations make all kinds of suggestions about how to work together better. That's the, I think, the common thread through many of them. I think this justice will be remembered if he is. Which probably by most people he will not be, but if he was, would be as a meticulous gatherer of information and a meticulous reporter of information along with all the various lawyers he, he hired up for this process. There are the kinds of recommendations, I think, in large part, would, which can be implemented because they're, they're, you know, maybe like setting up a committee or setting up a process, that kind of stuff that, that's easy to do. The actual doing of the things when another crisis hits is, is the bigger question.
2: But Nick, I just want to leap in because all of those recommendations really matter and it is good to have that meticulous detail. But a certain part of this to me strikes me as, you know, how do you learn to walk? Well, first, your left foot. And then your right foot and you try and balance while you're moving forward. The point of the story is that proper will, everybody knew how to deal with this. It was obvious before the convoy ever entered Ottawa, anyone with experience with law enforcement would have known, do not let large vehicles enter the immediate area of Parliament Hill, get control of your traffic, your no-go areas. This is ordinary policing. It is ordinary policing not to allow... A blockade to form at a border crossing, certainly not the most important border crossing in the country. This is an ordinary will and willingness and commitment to policing and to controlling this situation would have controlled it. So, yes, it's good to have these details about, well, there were breakdowns in communication and this was why this couldn't happen and that couldn't happen. But the fact was that. Reasonably competent policing and commitment would have would have dealt with this right away. I noticed that when the convoy attempted to enter Toronto and set up there, it was stopped right away just because the police knew what to do and, they, and and they did it. And they should have done it right from the very beginning. This was just such an abject failure and I don't actually think we need thousands of pages of analysis as to how and why it could be improved in the future. But I don't know whether it would be if a storm happened again.
1: I do think it's worth pointing out, though, just briefly, that this is the city of Ottawa where we're not entirely clear who polices Wellington Street right in front of Parliament Hill. And even after this report, we're still not quite sure. I agree with you. I think you've persuaded me in 30 seconds, Sandy. But there are still these bizarre, awkward Canadian questions about jurisdiction. Whose job is it to stop the people from getting to this particular place? I mean... You could say it was the job of the Ottawa police before they got to that point. Fair enough.
3: I remember thinking two things at the time because I was living right down the road. One was these clowns, uh, I should be specific because there were many clowns, the occupiers had either deliberately or accidentally weaponized federalism in order to facilitate the occupation. I'm not sure if they did it on purpose or not, but they did it. They were able to to effectively sort out the fact that, oh, well, if we go and do it here— it's going to be a gong show because it's going to be unclear who's in charge. And I remember also thinking, am I missing something here? Because if it were me in a position of authority, the first thing I would have done was say, let's get everyone from every jurisdiction in a room together talking from the outset and coordinating so that we can have a proper response to this and a clear channel of communications and you know a single Tiger team that's going to run this thing because you've got to deal with Quebec, Gatineau, Ottawa, Ontario, the federal government, the military, ceases, the Ottawa police, they got no police, et cetera, et, cetera, et cetera, et cetera. the parliamentary security, et cetera et cetera. So it's a lot of folks. get them all in a room and talk. Like they've got to have each other's phone numbers, right? Presumably they or their email, they're on IM. like presumably there's a way for everyone to talk. But I think one of the key takeaways from, from Rouleau is that and the, they can't possibly deal with this in recommendations here is the federalism broke down in part because the government of Ontario abandoned Doug Ford specifically abandoned Ottawa and didn't do their jobs. Because either Ford is incompetent or has a grudge against Ottawa proper or both or who knows. But Doug Ford's government effectively uh, was a huge part of that failure. There's endemic problems in the Ottawa Police service. We know that as well, so that it's also a policing issue insofar as uh, police who are sympathetic or apparently sympathetic to the occupiers uh, made it more difficult to to slow, stall, and then remove the occupation. So there's a deep policing problem, too. But I think the federalism issue is key, is that it was was an utter breakdown of federalism, in part because part of the equation, the Ontario government failed utterly. So, um, you know, that you can't fix with a recommendation, that you have to fix by electing better people. (laughs)
0: All right, let's adjourn. That's been The backbench. We'll talk again in two weeks when we'll be halfway through Pisces season. If you've been following along with what happens in Ottawa, let us know what you're watching closely, what you'd like to hear us discuss, and what esoteric Canadian politics content you want us to break down. Send us your questions, your concerns, and your rants. You can email us at backbench at and we're also on Twitter at Backbenchcast. I'm Matea Roach, and you can find me on Twitter and on Instagram at Matea Roach. David, where can people find you?
3: Google my name and just whatever comes up is good. Twitter, Mastodon, Post, Substack, Washington Post, Open to Debate, Left Looking In.
0: A man of many platforms. Nick, where can people find you?
1: I write a newsletter. It's called The Ottawa Playbook and you can find it at politico.com slash Ottawa Playbook.
0: Sandy, where can people find you?
2: I mean, the National Observer, and on Twitter, at Garasino, and at Garasino on post.
0: The ideal gas law, also called the general gas equation, approximates the behavior of many gases under a wide variety of conditions. The equation is PV equals nRT, in which P is pressure, V is volume, N is the amount of gas in moles, R is the ideal gas constant, don't ask me what it is, and T is temperature. This episode was produced by Aviva Lessard with additional production by Noor, Azriyeh, and Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofo. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. If you value this podcast, support us. You'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on merch, tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis by keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for listening.